Welcome to the EMS on the Mountain podcast, a show for those interested in austere and wilderness medicine. This podcast provides insight into the unique aspects and challenges of bringing modern EMS into wilderness and austere environments. Zero. And welcome back to another episode of EMS on the Mountain. Yeah, we're doing that again. We're going to stop, though. That's totally staying in. I'm leaving that. Uh, and then I'm well, splicing yeah. in the intro. Yeah. That's because it's a good intro. So. Yeah. Touche. Yeah. We're not as off to a good start as we were with snake bites. Yeah. For those of you who listened to that episode, and if you have not, shame on you. That episode's called Fuck Around and Find Out, Sean. Yeah. It is. <laughs> so, last episode, we talked about some of the technology that's made its way into the wilderness EMS and austere medicine world or arena, if you will. As we talked about last time we mentioned, we picked a few items that we thought most applicable to the wilderness side of austere medicine, just because there's the wilderness stuff that we talk about all the time is not all there is to this world, but that's, that's our focus. And that's what we talked about. So for those of you that listened to the technology episode, no, we didn't cover all the things that are out there, we just picked a, a few of the ones that are probably most common in CMS. Now, with this episode, we're going to talk about the how do we do the things without the things. Okay. So, a lot of agencies, organizations have good funding, good donors, good sponsors, and they have access to all of those things, some of those things, or maybe some things we are not even aware of that are out there yet that we're like, ooh, that's cool too. But for the rest of us that live, with, we'll say, poorly funded and resourced agencies and organizations that don't have access to a lot of these things, how are we still going to do all of this wilderness medicine piece, providing the best possible care we can without access to some of those pieces of technology? So keep in mind, this is probably for the majority of us operate somewhere in this gray area between having a lot of this stuff and none of the stuff. Uh, yeah. yeah. All right, Mike. Well, so yeah. Let's talk about the minimum baseline or what I would like to call shit you don't leave home without. You can go bop on by a CVS and pick up a pretty inexpensive little finger clam doodad shell jammer pulse oximeter. That's technical term, folks. That's a technical term. Yeah. You're, you don't need to go get a Massimo high speed, high drag pulse oximeter, but if you're doing medicine, especially in today's day and age, you've got to at least have the equipment that most of your patients that are scared of COVID have at their home already and are telling you what their oximetry is before you arrive. They're, look, I'm going to be honest. They're not the most accurate, but they're not inaccurate. It's levels of accuracy. But 85% still 85%. That's a pretty good indication you should probably supplement some oxygen. And do something uh, about that. To, to 99. We're, in the, we're doing okay space. But the little... What do they cost? Like 30 bucks, maybe? Yeah, yeah. Depending on quality, anywhere from 20 to 50, 60. Yeah, but they're small. You can stick them in your pocket and take them with you down the trail with very little effort. So even if you don't have access to all the whiz bang tree and you're not carrying a Zoll or a life pack down the trail, having a pulse oximeter gives you a lot of information. Most of them will give you a pulse rate and they will also give you generally good guidance on the oxygen saturation of your patient. Again, they're not perfect, but 
No pulse oximeter is perfect. Many a time I look at the one on my $30,000 life pack 15 and go, eh, is that true? Uh, so the I think they're... Go ahead. Go ahead. I think, I think what the only, I'm not going to, but that's right. He actually did finish a paramedic program. I think the one thing to keep in mind, just like with any of this stuff, especially a lot of things we're going to talk about today is it at least gives you a baseline. So if you look at your little portable pulse ox and it's telling you 92, but everything looks good with your patient, there's no signs of cyanosis or anything weird that you would expect with not that 92 is going to be in an area where we're going to start to see a lot of huge physiological changes, but if you see that as the baseline, then yeah, it drops five points when something happens. It's, oh, I should take note of that. Same thing like, oh, it's going up. Oh, okay. Maybe they're breathing better. Maybe I repositioned an airway and things are better now. I don't know. So don't necessarily get wrapped up in the true accuracy of a one for one number on the display. Obviously, if it says 80, chances are it's going to be low regardless. So you should do something about that. All vital signs are trends over time. They are not a snapshot of perfection at the time they are taken. Exactly, right? right? Yeah, use it for what it is. Yep. Anyway. Anyway, so you should bop on down to the CVS if you're, if you're doing the wilderness rescue and grab one of these little pocket-sized jammers. They're useful. Also, random aside... In my personal experience, leave the tether attached or attach the tether that it comes with and actually put it on somebody's wrist because you will eventually, it will fall off a finger during extrication. And then you'd be like, yeah. dude, my pulse ox is gone. Now I got to go spend 30 bucks again. This stinks. I, I know there are probably two or three that are in the middle of the woods <laughs> for a fact. Last <laughs> we have patients where it's like, damn it, where's my pulse ox? And they had the lanyard yep. on them, but I wanted to replace them with like neon orange or that safety green yellow color so that I can see yeah. them. Yep, for sure. They pretty much all come with little lanyards. Use them. Glucometer. If you're an EMS in 2023 and you don't actively take a sugar on folks, I must say it. Shame on you. It's so there's a surprising number of contacts EMS has with people that are pre-diabetic or diabetic and don't know it. They're calling because mm-hmm. they stub their toe, and then you take their sugar and it's 300, and you're like, "Hey, do you manage your sugar at all?" And they're like, "What are you talking about? I'm fine." And quite frankly. A glucometer is a pretty good measure of what's going on. It's not a perfect measure, but it's a decent measure of what's going on. I'll call it a directionally good piece of information for people you're going to be with for a while, right? We think of glucometers as a thing we use to check sugar for diabetics. But if I'm with a patient for six, seven, eight, ten 10 hours, and they're burning through energy, they're hurt, they're trying to stay warm, whatever the case may be, the ability to measure their sugar at various times and make sure that they have the fuel they need to mentate properly and stay warm. It's a, it's not a perfect measure, but it is a little insight as to how they're generally doing blood sugar wise. Plus, it's just a good thing to be able to take blood sugar. A lot of things that come out as illnesses or dehydration or a lot of other things can actually be attributed to low or high sugar levels in patients mm-hmm. that are not used to being in the woods. And without a glucometer, all you got, like the only thing you got left is to go old school and taste their pee. And I'm not doing that. Again, glucometer at the CVS, not super expensive, but well, it's a very useful tool. And here's the thing I'm going to throw in there. Doing blood sugar, that's so easy. And it helps you really mm-hmm. find those easy wins, right? Oh, the reason you're feeling lightheaded and not right now is A, your sugar's low. Or, oh, I've just had these really bad abdominal cramps and everything else, blah, blah, blah. Oh, look at that. My glucometer says, hi, I think we found your problem, 
right? And it gives you at least a place to start. Yeah, because not everybody that has stomach cramps in the woods is necessarily because they drank some contaminated water and they've now got giardia. Stomach cramping and things like that are often associated with high blood glucose levels. Is this patient drunk or are they, because so yes, last time we were, last time we were on duty, there was a large collection of magic mushrooms going around the area Man, that folks were imbibing in. Every and it's one of those, are you on drugs or is your blood sugar low? Just a glucometer helps you rule out some simple, easy diagnostics like, and they're small, they're lightweight. Yeah. Mike said it's 2023. There's really not an excuse for you to not get a baseline blood sugar on your patients. Even if everything I mean, else. If you have done. a good excuse for it, come at me, bro. Kid us in the yeah. social medias and let me know why you don't think taking blood sugar is a good idea. And I'll find two paramedics on this podcast that'll disagree with <laughs> you. But I, the only, the only exception is if you are normally fully alert, mentating properly, blah, blah, blah. And we know you can recall the full set of events, why you tripped, fell and snapped your ankle in half. I might not be worried about a blood sugar. But if I have any indication that you're like, oh, I'm just feeling weak, not sure why I fell. Okay. Let's check a blood sugar. Right. So I'm, yeah, I mean, uh, there's, I'm there's, and for anybody that tripped and fell and you're treating, you're starting a line and yeah, everybody can send me notes and be like, it's not actually how it's calibrated. I know, but it's a good, it's directionally close. standard. Yeah. It's a good directional it's standard a, for how they're doing. If you got blood and catheter, we all know the trick, grab a pen and <laughs> check their blood sugar while you're at it. I don't know. I, I don't know how to do that. I'm not teaching you. So um, I guess you're and, SOL. Yeah. For those that are like poo-pooing. Yes, correct. It is. Your glucometers are set up not for venous blood, but actually capillary. Yeah. But they're not going to yeah. be 40 points off guys. It's okay. And they're also not going to be a $30 glucometer from CVS <laughs> that we're using for exacting <laughs> glucose into the hospital either. And I'm just going to say that especially for all the paramedics or ALS providers out there listening. They're all like, you guys actually still do finger sticks. I always do it from the IV. Yeah. Yeah. There there's is that. that too. All right. Um, Continue my right. friend. So the other bop on by the local CVS and pick yourself up one cheap one stethoscope and a blood pressure cuff, because it turns out, and I know this is going to come as a shock to a lot of folks that are under the age of 30 that are listening, but there was a time when you couldn't just push the NIBP button and get a number. <laughs> Like, like you used to have to actually do this and they still teach it right. When we were teaching paramedic school, like you had yeah. to learn to properly auscultate blood pressures. This comes up a lot and I'm not sure why in the wilderness medicine area, but I'm going to mention this. You cannot put a blood pressure cuff on upside down and hang it out of the, the wrap on a patient and get an as accurate blood pressure matter measure. It's not actually a round balloon in there. They're shaped in a way that is intended to work a certain way, but. Even if you turn it around, it's better than not having one. A stethoscope at a blood pressure gives you a lot of information. And what are baseline vitals we should be checking before we administer any medication, if at all possible? Pulse rate, blood pressure. Yeah, yeah. I'd hate to give somebody something that's going to potentially drop their blood pressure and not know where we started (laughs) so I can trend it over time. Weird. Sean and I are still doing manual blood pressures on all of our patients. We don't have any fancy wizardry to take in the woods. I've played with a number of those at-home Bluetooth, what are the wild things and various at-home health measures. They're just not as good as doing it manually, right? Yeah. You get a better blood pressure because I auscultate a blood pressure than I do from any of those tools. The only better thing out there really is a professional monitor, and we're not carrying one of those in the woods. 
blood pressure cuff. I would even argue, depending on the demographics, you should carry a couple of sizes, depending on. But mm -hmm. if you're going to carry one, just an adult size is fine. And a stethoscope will tell you all kinds of things if you learn to use it. There's the traditional lung sounds, which we should all know how to listen to as medical professionals. You can hear a bunch of other stuff. I don't want to go deep on this podcast, but you can place the stethoscope over the sternum. You can place it over the thorax. You can use it to listen to abdominal sounds. There's a lot of things that you can learn to use a stethoscope for if you go a little old school. This really harkens back to, I almost call it a lost art of the patient mm. assessment. Before we yeah, had a bunch yeah. of ultrasounds and stuff, percussion and various things were how doctors had to figure out what they thought was going on. And if you, yeah. if you spend some time, I've taken some classes. There's a, one guy out there that does a particularly interesting one, but you can actually learn a lot. You can actually do some percussion and stuff in, yeah. in conjunction with the stethoscope to determine like inflammation of the liver and things. Now it's not something yeah. we're going to do in the woods all the time, but it is possible. There's a, and I've never learned this one, but yeah, there's a technique for, with percussion in your stethoscope, like for long bone fractures, because the sound. I've never learned it either, but I know it exists. Yeah. But yeah. it's like, it's out there. It's like one of those things. If you're one of those guys that learned that back in the day, or you still practice it, let us know how that works. Yeah. Um, so we'd like to know how. It's pretty, I'm pretty interesting. Yeah, but like, there's a lot of stuff that can go with a stethoscope beyond just lung sounds. Plus from the looking cool aspect. There have been studies, right? If you take a guy in grungy jeans and a t-shirt and you hang a stethoscope around his neck and you stand him next to a guy in a white coat with no stethoscope, they think he's the doctor because he's got a stethoscope around his neck. That is, that is Even true. if you're never going to use it, just take your stethoscope out of your pack right before you come around the corner, hang it over your neck and be like, I am the professional. See, I've got a stethoscope. I'm here to take care of you. And they'll believe that's, you and do whatever you, you tell them. That's right. Um, I do want to mention, we probably, Sean was right. We probably should have mentioned these in the last episode. But Echo, EKO, they make some, some stethoscopes. They make basically two different kinds. There's the core, which fits on a standard Littman stethoscope. And then they make a, what's called a, I think it's called a Duo ECG. It's a, it's got a lead like that, as yeah. well. It can do some cardiac rhythm stuff. I have both of them. I played with the cardiac rhythms. What I really, truly love about them is the fact that I can record the audio and It'll also give you, what's the word I'm looking for? Enhanced audio sound. Now, these are an electronic thing. This podcast is about not relying on all the fancy technology, but especially the, the ECG one. If you have a phone with you already and the ECG one, it's about the size of half the size of an iPhone and it can slip right in your pocket. There's no cords. There's no tubing. I use it quite a bit actually in the field in practice. So if you're not familiar with them, I recommend checking them out. It's amazing what you can hear when you have the audio enhancement turned on as well. You just have to remember that if you're using one of these audio enhancing stethoscopes to take a blood pressure, you're going to get a different number because, you know, you can hear better. So mm. practice with them, get accustomed to them. I spent some time actually taking blood pressures with the audio enhancement and then comparing it to a life pack when I was bored one day on duty because I wasn't running calls just to get a sense for what I could hear. And I had preceptees and they didn't get a choice, which was helpful, but they're a, a neat bit of tech. And if you're, if you have a bit of hearing trouble or you've spent 10 years in EMS and you have hearing loss in your left ear, cause you primarily drive like I do, these things can help a little bit in making sure you get accurate information, especially in a noisy environment, like the woods and the rain, et cetera, et cetera. It's not the end of the world, but the better 
the better we can hear the stethoscope, the better off we're getting information. Yeah. All right, I'll get off my horse. And if, by the way, Echo, if you're listening and you want to sponsor us and have us do a whole thing on audio enhanced stethoscopes in the woods, I'm happy to have a conversation. So oh yeah, we'd love know. to. We'd love to field test some equipment. <laughs> we would love to test them. All right. All right. So those, if you, but, but seriously, if you, if you pop a pulse oximeter, a glucometer and an old school manual blood pressure cuff and a stethoscope in your pack, you're going to be pretty well off for gathering information, especially on medical patients, gathering a bunch of information that lets you make better decisions and provide better care. So don't need a yes. life pack 15 for every call. And despite Michael's recommendation to stop on in at your local drugstore on the way in, maybe invest in some slightly better kit than you're going to get at the local drugstore. Yeah, Just that's saying. true too. That's true too. All right. So we'll let that go. Anyway, we don't have a lot of technology, but we're going to say we have our core technology pieces Mike just talked about. So how do we do the rest of this without anything else? It comes down to two basic skills. And if you're listening to this and you are certified as an EMT or above, or even if you attended a good wellness first aid, wellness first responder class, you know exactly what I'm going to say. And the first one is going to be physical exam, followed by knowledge and understanding of clinical pathophysiology, right? There's no way around it. So I'm going to talk about the first part here, the physical exam. Do one. Okay. A lot of folks, especially if you run ambulance-based 911 stuff, you get out of the habit of doing full physical exams. You tend to Get a dispatch call and you're going to have some CAD notes. Maybe they're detailed, maybe they're not. It's going to be abdominal pain. It's going to be a traumatic injury, something, right? And you're already going to put that one into your brain. We're not going to talk about cognitive bias stuff, right? But you're going to put what the initial call notes are into your brain. You're going to roll up to your patient and say, hi, my name's Sean. I'm a paramedic. What seems to be the trouble today? And they're going to give you something and you're just going to run with that. Now, for a lot of your patients in that setting, a full physical exam is not warranted. That's, it's not something that's needed on everybody you run across. However, when we are working in the austere environment, particularly even with trauma patients, not just the medicals, but the medicals, you definitely need to do a full assessment because you're in a different environment and you need to find things. There are environmental factors at play. Hey. This millipede on the back of your neck that's been biting you might have been causing some of the issues. Or you find spider bite, the spider, something, right? Not saying it's going to happen every time, but there are other physical factors that you could find during a physical exam that you may not normally find through a routine. Just it's a medical call. I don't do a physical exam kind of thing, or at least a full physical exam. Now, I'm not saying that you must do a full head to toe on everybody you come across. It is still situationally dependent. But it comes down to, you need to do the physical exam. Don't just say, yeah, that, that ankle's purple. Good to go. Is that the only injury? I don't know how many times Mike and I and other providers we know that work in this arena have called for a patient who took a fall, possible broken ankle, unable to bear weight, blah, blah, blah. Okay. So we get there. Oh, we'll it happened to me the... last week on the truck. I got right. so focused on this girl's broken leg and her screaming and yelling in pain that I completely missed her deformed back that they found mm. in the ED later because I got distracted by her screaming about the road rash and the broken leg that was obvious to me. And that's what I ended up pissing on. Now, yeah, the outcome wasn't any different, but it happens in the front country. And that's when we're not even, when we have all the tools and the opportunity. Yeah. You get into the woods, man. These exams are really important. They give you a lot of yeah. information. 
Yeah. And that's the thing is like people take, again, it, it all depends on where you work, right? So for where we're at, if people take a fall, they do a little bit of a tumble, even if it's on trail, there are a lot of rocks and roots and just tree bits and everything else that are out there that people may not notice that they've uh, got a big cut now on the back of their head as well, but things like that. So pretty much on almost every trauma patient, even if you're thinking it's going to be that isolated lower extremity orthopedic injury, I will still often do a quick cursory head to toe, quick physical assessment just to get a look, get a feel, do the spinal thing, do the neck thing. Cause a lot of people don't know like that. We should have all learned about the distracting injury part, right? It is real. So especially if you have somebody that's got some crazy angulated fracture, that's going to occupy a lot of their brain. And they may not notice some of these other little things that may or may not remain little things. Okay. So enough about that. I guess really with that, one of my other notes here is if you're not sure about the full extent of injuries, then do the full physical exam, right? Don't get lazy. Don't just assume the call for the broken ankle is just the broken ankle. We've been on calls or been dispatched for calls that are reports of broken legs and we get there and it's not at all an orthopedic injury on any part of the body. They're actually having chest pain and shortness of breath, right? But the game of telephone tag from one part of the trail down through cell service into a dispatch center. The next thing it's, oh, I think they've said they were heard something about not being able to walk anymore. They couldn't walk because of their chest pain or abdominal pain or some other medical ailment. So you got to get there and you got to do your exam. Just what I'm saying here is if it warrants it, do a good physical exam. Don't be lazy. Okay. If you're going to have, if you've got a partner that you work with and you're going to have them do your physical exam, guess who gets to Practice do all the repeat? Oh, <laughs> sorry. My bad. <laughs> Oil up first. <laughs> right. Oopsies. Shock strap and a light coat of CLP will do you right every time. Give <laughs> you right. Um, oh my God. So this kind of goes back to those fundamentals, right? So if I'm going to have Mike, hey, start a physical exam on patient A here. If we go for repeat physical exams, Mike should still be the guy redoing that. Simply because he may or may not have noticed the deformity here. He's going to see, did this grow? Is the abdomen now more rigid? deformed is there bruising here before that wasn't here before first time i looked and this is a we've actually, this is a general statement but i guarantee if you've done ems long enough you've taken somebody to the hospital like grandma from a nursing home or somewhere right who fell out of bed or some such and you, you mm -hmm. pick grandma up and you're like let's go to the ed to get checked out and you take a quick look and you're like oh everything's fine let's go and you walk into the ed and you look at the doctor or the nurse that's there taking a report and you say, yeah, grandma fell, but no big thing. And the doctor in one, one hand movement swipes the back of grandma's head and goes, oh, you mean this big goose egg back here that you forgot to mention? Like, yeah. it's, it happens, right? So repeat physical exams, find changes, ergo the term repeat. It's just necessary, especially when you're going to be caring for these people for more than 20 or 30 minutes, right? Yeah. We, years ago, we had a patient who was involved in a, a, a wee bit of a motor vehicle incident. And their initial assessment by the first EMT that was responder on scene was like, oh yeah, she's pretty good. Not feeling quite right. Wants to go see the doc. And we get there, we're on scene. We're like, okay, cause they're now turning it over to us. And we go and we start doing our own assessment because this patient's now mine. So I need to do my assessment. So here's your second pearl. If you're receiving the patient from somebody else, if you don't have 100% faith and confidence in their ability to do a full patient assessment, 
do your own. It's now your patient. So when you're turning them over to the doctor, they go, cool. What about this hole in their back? And you'll be like, what hole? There's anyway. So this particular patient, we're doing a reassessment. We're doing a good head to toe. And next thing, the upper left quadrant of her abdomen had this large swollen discolored mass developing on it. And it was like one of those. And that first EMT on scene was like, oh, that wasn't there the first time I looked at her. This is one of those things that patients change and you want to be aware of them. So enough on that. Second, yeah. we'll circle back to that. If you're just now taking over a patient from another provider, make sure you do a good assessment of your own. I'm not saying if they did a good splint, undo all the splinting to take a look at an ankle or an arm, but do a quick assessment so that you feel comfortable that what they did tell you is correct. Because yeah, you don't want to be that guy that, and this happens in urban EMS particularly is you get that guy to the doctor and you talk about, he's got this one gunshot wound in his thigh and you totally missed the one on his back because you failed to roll him over. Let's not be that provider. All right. I guess that's really about it is do the good folks at exam, right? When it's necessary and appropriate, do a good exam. Don't get lazy about it because this is one of those things. You don't have anything else to tell you about your patient, but your assessment. So do it. Anyway, that's enough on that. All right. Since we're talking about exams, we should probably talk about good, solid foundational knowledge of pathophysiology, a word I can't say, pathophysiology. There we go. I don't really care if you're a critical care paramedic that's got thousands of hours riding around in the back of an ambulance going from one hospital to another with really sick people, or whether you're a brand new EMT or you're an EMR, or you just got your wilderness first aid cert. You're a paramedic that's worked 911 for four years. That's another head tilt to my 2020 voice. Groupie. You got to know your pathologies and the physiology associated with it. So by definition, pathophysiology is a branch of study that intersects pathology with physiology. In other words, if it hurts over here, it's probably X. Or if my toe hurts, it could be referred pain from my blah, blah, blah. I made both of those up. Neither one of those are real. But the point is, you don't have a whole bunch of whiz-bang stuff we just talked about in the last episode. I can't ultrasound your abdomen. I can't go looking for kidney stones. But I can tell you that if a sudden onset of excruciating pain in your left flank that was not precipitated by anything else, I got to start thinking about things like kidney stones. Sean mm -hmm. thinks about them all the time. No, he tries not to. But the reality is you can spend a lot of time studying it. You can forget a lot of things. You got to re-remember them. We all at some point went to EMT school. If you hold a card and you're listening to this podcast and they're really back when I did it way back in the day, I don't believe it's changed. There was a focus on understanding the basic things, right? Pancreatitis and inflamed gut portions and referred pain and understanding what those were. If you're going to be walking around in the woods with a limited set of tools and Actually, this would apply to the truck too, right? You're doing your patient a better service. A, 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 you're doing the best you can for the patient when you have a good pathophysiological knowledge base. And you can say, hey, this sounds like blah, blah, blah. I heard about it or read about it in such and such. But when you advocate for those things, even if you're working traditional EMS, right? When you can advocate for those things for the doc, you're doing better by your patient because you're giving them more information to go on. They're not starting from zero. And quite frankly, they can help you through a lot of things. This can be as simple as 
this is probably not the best example, but it's the one I'm going to use. Having a temperature doesn't necessarily mean you're septic, but having a temperature and having been sick for a while certainly doesn't rule it out. And on the flip side, you can be septic for long enough that you no longer have a temperature and asking the questions, and this really does come down to asking questions as well, asking all the questions, gathering as full a picture as you can, right? We often get sucked into Bob tripped and hurt his ankle. And so we're going to go help Bob with the twisted ankle. Bob might have a whole bunch of other stuff going on, or as is common in what I'll call more wildernessy slash super rural EMS, Timmy just doesn't feel good. We've been on this Boy Scout trip for two days. Timmy doesn't feel good. Okay, what hurts, Timmy? It generally hurts in my abdomen. My belly hurts. Is that from Giardia? Is it from bad water? Is it from an undiagnosed sugar condition, a diabetic condition? Is it from some other thing? Did he just get treated for a pancreas problem that nobody else knew about because we haven't really discussed it? Has he been to the doctor recently? Does he take any medications? All of those things lead into a correlation between pathology and physiology and being able to draw those correlations and link the two are important. I guess I'm done waxing poetic now. What are your thoughts, Sean? I'm, it's just well, important. You have to be able to do is. these things. And I think you, you were up a key point that I left out with the physical exam. And this is again, part of your exam, but that history taking piece is super important. Have you been sick lately? Have you been to the doctor recently? Have you had recent surgeries? Blah, blah, blah. Cause those can give you clues right now. Back to the pathophysiology piece. If you don't understand, especially for your sick patients, what's happening to them within their bodies, especially in the limited resource environment, it's going to be very difficult for you to make good evacuation and treatment recommendations. You need to understand like, oh, this is very critical. This is something we need to really try and get a helicopter for, or do we weigh the odds of, is this worth doing a 20 person carry out in the dark through rough terrain? And if mm -hmm. the answer is no, and you have to understand your patient's condition well enough to know that they can wait overnight till daylight before doing an evacuation. And if you understand those things, you can make those decisions. If you don't know them, it's very difficult for you to make an informed decision. Secondly. When it comes to pathophysiology, for the ALS providers who are giving drugs and different medications, if you don't understand how those interact with your patient in conjunction with their injury or illness, you're doing them a disservice, right? Mike and I are also big fans of ketamine, especially for backcountry use. For all the things. <laughs> ketamine, ketamine for all the things. Greatest oh. sticker I ever found. Yep. But if you don't understand some of the times when you don't want to give ketamine, like in the catecholamine depleted patient that you might find in a severe trauma in the middle of the woods and why yep. giving them ketamine for sedation or analgesia might be a bad choice, you're failing yourself and your patient. Don't be that next paramedic who kills somebody because you didn't understand how ketamine works. And other drugs, like when is it appropriate to give, use a benzo over ketamine for sedation choices in one should you I, not use a benzo right yeah exactly oh i should not use one for this because it also acts in these same receptors and does things right yep the choice between fentanyl and morphine for analgesia if you have access mike and i our agency yep, we have access we have both right so when do i want to use morphine versus when do i want to use fentanyl what happens when i use morphine yeah say what happens both when both. i use morphine and a benzo 
right? Ooh, exactly. Yeah. So if you don't understand the pathophysiology of what's happening with your patient, and this also goes to, you need to know your pharmacology, right? So this wasn't written just for our ALS friends, right? But you obviously got to know all your pharmacology as well. But if you don't understand the pathophysiology of what's going on with your patient, even with a fracture, why are they swelling? Why is the blood doing this? What are the potential complications from this? You need to understand yeah, those things and be aware of them. Man, it's pretty common for EMTs nowadays to sling Zofran and Epi. Oh, yeah. It's a really good idea to understand a little bit about what's going on there and what well, complications can occur, right? So here's a good one, right? A recent social media post I was reading, mutual friend of ours put it out talking about changing scopes, EMTs doing this and that. And in my mind, I was thinking about that, right? Because I've seen that in my own urban agency, right? So the EMTs where I'm at can give quite a bit. They can, we have glucagons, one of their new ones, right? So if you roll up and that glucometer says low, or it's that lower end of, of below the normal range and are altered, our EMTs can administer glucagon. And so when I was the training officer, we sat down, we had a thing and let's talk about what does glucagon do, right? Because if you're going to give this drug, you should know how this drug works and why it's doing what in your body, right? So you have to understand the pathophysiology of why it's working or not working. Because most of our, at least paramedic providers who've ever used glucagon, you sometimes have that patient who's low and you give the glucagon expecting a little bit of something because you maybe couldn't get your IV access and they're still not doing anything. And if you don't know why that's not happening, then you're wrong. So you have to understand the pathophysiology plus the pharmacology on that one. Next one that's very common for a lot of BLS services nowadays is also doing duonebs, right? Yeah. Giving your inhaled beta agonist. It's not just, relatively speaking, it's a fairly benign drug, right? But you go so back to the- I go to weigh at 160 and is having oh, trouble breathing wait. and she's rocking some RSR, right? But now, yes. Yeah, so now we've given her some, a beta agonist and we're like, doing what we think are going to be good things for her, but we don't understand why it might be a bad thing. The patients, yeah. when they take that, or you're giving somebody a duoneb, or even if it's just some albuterol and all of a sudden their heart starts tacking away. If you don't understand that's a common physiological reaction, then you're wrong. So yeah, you need to understand the pathophysiology of why might they start going tachycardic? What is it? in the human body that is happening, that this drug is going to do something beneficial for them. And so that's where we're at with that. All right. So again, wrapping up that pathophys piece, you just, you simply have to know it, right? Regardless of your level, if you're a wellness first responder and you're allowed to give EpiPen auto injectors, you should understand why that's happening and what's, what the beneficial things are. And so you can anticipate pathophysiologically what your patient's reaction to it should be. Any last comment on the pathophys, Mike, since that was your topic? No, I feel like I babbled on long enough, but the reality is you got to, this isn't even a wilderness medicine thing, right? It's just nah. practitioner's medicine. And I don't care if you're a doctor, a nurse, or a paramedic, or an EMT, right? Like it's part of being a good practitioner of medicine. You should understand some, I'll call it midline to basic level pathophysiology. And with that, I will shut up and move on. I would say at this point, we need to be at beyond basic, which leads us into Seek advanced training, right? And when we say you need to seek advanced training, we're not talking about your standard CE annual training requirement type courses. Those are good. You need to maintain your baseline knowledge, your baseline pathophysiology, but you need to move beyond that. And I mean that regardless of your certification level, wellness first aider through physician. 
I would be very disappointed to meet a doctor who's been a doctor for 10 plus years and has not progressed his knowledge. That would just be shocking to me. So beyond just your standard CE type courses, your basic airway, basic cardiology, basic trauma management, et cetera, you need to find some courses that get into the pathophysiology, that get into advanced treatment modalities and care modalities, specifically if you can find them that replicate the environment that you work in. For normal paramedics, look at taking some critical care paramedic courses, right? There are, I won't say a boatload, but there are several online critical care review and prep courses that are out there. Take those courses, right? They get into more of the advanced pathophysiology. You don't have to sit for the exam, right? But you can gain more knowledge, right? And knowledge is not a bad thing, right? Now, Mike and I have taken a couple of them. Yeah, say yeah. Mike and I have both taken several critical care courses. Neither of us yeah. are critical care paramedics. But you get a different perspective on things like airway management and cardiology if you take these courses. So some examples there. Other advanced, we'll call them advanced practice courses uh, designed for osteo wellness folks. SOAR, rescue, special operations aid and rescue. Their extended austere provider course, which Mike and I have both done, is an great excellent course. course. It's a great course. Hell, we got a cardiology lecture in that course that was like mind blowing, right? It connected some dots from some par from paramedic and some other training. It was like, oh, holy crap, this guy was off the charts smart on cardiology. It was fantastic. Mind blown. Right. Yeah. yeah it was it was the single best dumb. I love it. Cardiology lecture I'd I'd ever had, right? Yep. And this was for basically it's designed for folks who operate in the austere environment and being able to provide that care, right? So you had to be able to do a good physical exam, find those injuries. You had to know your pathophys because you had to know how to treat these things. And it wasn't, you, there's no protocol book they gave you. You just had to know airway is a problem. We need to fix the airway. How do we fix the airway? Okay, now what's going on with the patient and be able to troubleshoot those things. So yep. you had to know what's going on. Excellent course. It's a week long. It's fantastic. The College of Remote and Offshore Medicine. These guys, they're based. Oh, where are they? Overseas, overseas somewhere. Yeah, I can't remember the country they're in right now off the top of my head. I'm sorry, guys. But they have some excellent online courses you can take. And they have a couple of in-person courses that are, again, designed for remote austere providers. And again, it's in their, it's in their title, the College of Remote and Offshore Medicine. A couple of their courses I would absolutely love to go to. But again, they put you in those situations where you've got to know what you're doing or you're not going to be able to make good treatment decisions. And then last one we're going to throw out there, the SOS Medical Red Med course, Rescue Expedition and Disaster Medicine course. This is also one where you can take an online module and they have an in-person classes. A couple times a year, they do one down in, I believe they're in Guatemala and another one, they go out to Nepal and do a trek to Everest Base Camp. And it's a bunch of hands-on skills training in that remote and austere environment. Okay. So there are opportunities out there. There are some other providers here in the U.S. Not everybody's overseas or just the SOAR folks. But what Mike and I have found is it is challenging to say the least to find a course that focuses on wilderness and austere medicine that is not just a basic rehash of a woofer type course. And again, yeah. nothing against a woofer course. They're perfect for what they are. But if you tell me you're an advanced wilderness provider, austere provider course, and you're still teaching me how to use sticks and duct tape, you're useless to me. I'm okay. I won't say you're useless, but if that's the premise of your course is you're in the woods, so do things. If you're not going to talk stuff. about yeah. pathophysiology, knowing these things, 
talking about treatment modalities and concerns for extended patient care, pharmacology, and maybe off-label applications of certain drugs in these remote and austere settings, then what, what are you teaching? Yep. Anyway, that's so far. No, it's, I'm it's totally with to you. find these courses. Totally right? with you. So there are some courses that are out there that offer online and in-person training things. Like I said, I've done a couple of the Coram online courses. I found them to be very interesting. They've expanded my knowledge in certain areas. Same with the SOS, the ReadMade course. I did the online version during COVID when there were no in-person courses. I'd love to get down there and do their in-person one, but it is what it is. But I think no, my- I want to do it. I haven't yeah. done that one. Now I want to do it. I know. Don't you just want to go to Guatemala for a week and train? Because nice. wouldn't that be fun? Yep. Yeah. Yes, that would be neato. All right. All right. Any other thoughts? No. I think one of the last things that's on here, and you hit it, was, folks, this does not apply just to the wilderness and austere type providers. If you're a firefighter who's at the EMR level, because your fire agency doesn't also do EMS or you're not required to go beyond that EMT paramedic, you're a police officer who's an EMR, you're an EMT, you're a paramedic, a wellness first aid or wellness first responder. This things we're talking about, like your fundamental skills, patient assessments, knowledge of pathophysiology, right? You need to be up in your game. It doesn't matter where you run. If you're just an urban 911 paramedic, just one of those. Just one. Yeah. Take, at least take one. Take one critical care just one of those online review courses, just take it, read through the book. Most of them all have some associated book that goes with them. Sit through the lectures, read the book. You're going to learn something. And if you don't get on you, you're already ahead of the curve in some stuff. Seek out that additional knowledge. This is not just for the wellness austere folks. This is everybody that practices medicine needs to be up in their game until you're out of it. Lastly, Mike, it comes down to two things. And what are those two things? Oh, do good exams and know your shit. All right. Mike, Mike likes the profanity part. Not that I'm afraid to say fuck, but uh, it just uh, makes him we, smile more. We, we are now officially children. Yeah, we've been children, right? We work, oh, yeah. we, we both work in EMS and with government agencies that like a useful outlook on life, we'll say. So again, wrapping up this, I don't know how long this episode's 45 minutes, 40 minutes, whatever, comes down to two things. Do good exams, know your shit. Even if you've got all the tools in the world, if you don't do either of those, having a life pack 15 give you a blood pressure and a cardiac rhythm, and you don't know what to do with either of those bits of information, is not helping you or your patient. So that's all my rant for this day. All right, then I guess we're just going to call this the end of this episode. And if you have any comments, as always, hit us up on social media. We're more than happy to banter back and forth and have you tell us why we're wrong and then not listen to you. So hit us up. That's not true. We'll listen to you. We'll listen to you. All right. Later. If you have any questions or comments or ideas for show topics, you can send us an email at the show at emsonthemountain.com or hit us up on social media. We can be found on Facebook and Instagram at EMS on the Mountain, Twitter at EMSOTM, or you can engage with us and a whole community of wilderness EMS professionals at locals.com slash wilderness EMS. Until the next episode, thanks for joining us. And until we see you on the mountain, train hard, be safe, and do good work.